Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Uh, Today on our weekly roundtable, the problem with guns, the hold the National Rifle Association has on conservatives. Why won't Congress act? How can our children be safe just going to school? How will black and brown people be safe just doing normal activities? The deadly mix of guns and violence as the answer to conflict. We look at militarization, gun violence, weapons proliferation, and how they're used in the U.S. and in the Americas, including in femicide and domestic violence. Also, uh, keeping control in the Americas, the U.S., France, Canada, and the story of Haiti as a threat. The Monroe Doctrine still in place and being practiced. The Summit of the Americas. Can the Biden administration save face after several countries threaten to boycott? And the Biden administration pivot to Asia. The United States tries again. And What can be gleaned from the recent primaries? Has the GOP moved beyond Trump, the personality, but digging in on Trumpism or Trump policies? Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Nationwide student walkouts against gun violence demanding action on gun control took place Thursday from California to New York and in between. In Southern California, students at Saugus High School rallied where five students were shot and two killed in 2019. Students chanted, read books, not eulogies. Students walked out of their classes in dozens of states, including Wisconsin, Michigan, Missouri, North Carolina. In Rhode Island, students staged a die-in. And in Illinois, students spoke out at the Oak Park River Forest High School. It was never about the children or mental health. It's about money and it's about entitlement. And until our country learns to put lives over property, the cycle will continue. Two of the nation's largest teachers unions plans to protest at the National Rifle Association's annual conference that begins today in Houston, Texas. Former President Donald Trump will be a speaker. The Secret Service is not allowing firearms during his speech. Texas Governor Greg Abbott will deliver a recorded message and hold a press conference in Uvalde, Texas, where gunmen killed 19 children and two teachers this week. Conflicting accounts are coming out of Uvalde, Texas, where authorities now say the 18-year-old who massacred 21 people at the elementary school was in the building for over an hour before he was killed by law enforcement. The Texas Department of Public Safety's regional director, Victor Escalone, said Salvador Ramos fired bullets at a funeral home across the street before entering the school. He said four minutes later, Uvalde City and School District Police responded and were fired on by Ramos. They took cover and called for additional help. There was numerous officers at that classroom, numerous. Once we interview all those officers, what they were thinking, what they did, 
why they did it, the video, the residual interviews, what a better idea. Could anybody have gotten there sooner? The amount of time that lapsed has stirred anger and questions among family members who demanded to know why authorities did not storm the classroom and put a stop to the rampage more quickly. Video shows desperate parents pleading with the police to take action or get out of the way so they could charge into the building to save their children. Senate Democrats are calling for gun control legislation that be brought to the floor for a vote. Here's Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, the state that had the deadliest elementary school shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. I want to say a word to the gun lobby. Your days are numbered. You are... You are on the wrong side of history. They're calling for passage of so-called red flag laws and tougher background checks. Meanwhile, the education secretary, Miguel Cardona, added his voice to the calls for gun control. Mary Sherman reports. We as a country are becoming desensitized to the murder of children. Two days after a gunman stormed a Texas elementary school, killing 19 children and two teachers, education secretary Miguel Cardona said the time for thoughts and prayers is over. At a House hearing on the department's budget and priorities, Cardona emphasized students, teachers, and school leaders are scared. We've held staff trainings, active shooter drills. We've numbered our windows for easier access for law enforcement. We've improved online early detection screening tools, and we've secured our entrances and perimeters. That is no match for what we're up against. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Senate Republicans blocked a vote on a domestic terrorism bill yesterday. The Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act was brought up in the wake of the racially motivated mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, two weeks ago. Christopher Martinez reports. The bill had already passed out of the House, and Senate Leader Chuck Schumer of New York brought it to the Senate in the wake of the racially motivated mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. We need to call it what it is, domestic terrorism. It was terrorism that fed off the poison of conspiracy theories like white, like white replacement theory. This bill will give the government the tools to monitor, find, and arrest these evil actors before they have a chance to inflict violence on their communities. Republicans were not receptive, like Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, who has said little about gun legislation since the recent mass shootings. He talked about inflation. Anyone wanting to grill a bacon cheeseburger over Memorial Day weekend will find ground beef, ground beef up 15% and bacon up 18% compared to only one year ago. Republican Rand Paul, also of Kentucky, was upset about a section of the bill that would create a task force to investigate white supremacist and neo-Nazi infiltration in the military and police. The motion died on a party-line vote of 47 to 47. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. Ukraine's top prosecutor Erna Venediktova says Russia's major general of the police, Oleg Yakshevez, is suspected of organizing looting at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, where about $1 million in property has disappeared and a laboratory was destroyed, making it impossible to control the nuclear waste there. She made the announcement on social media. The Chernobyl nuclear power plant has been a site of concern since Russia invasion. International groups have sought access to the plant to keep it maintained and prevent a meltdown as Russia continues its war against the country.
A state appeals court has ruled former President Donald Trump must answer questions under oath in New York State civil investigation into his business practices. A four-judge panel in the appellate division of the state trial court upheld Judge Arthur Engeron's ruling enforcing subpoenas for Trump and his two eldest children to give deposition testimony in Attorney General Letitia James's probe. Trump had appealed seeking to overturn the ruling. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We're actually going to start out uh, today with our international um, segment, and then we'll go to our national discussion. And there, there's quite a bit to discuss under the international segment. I mean, there is uh, the U.S. pivot. Uh, to Asia, but there is a lot of um, talk now given the New York Times series on Haiti. And of course, we on Sojourner Truth have been covering Haiti uh, for quite a while and uh, much of the information in the New York Times we have been covering, but they've actually tracked down some of the paperwork and the data. Also, the Summit of the Americas uh, coming up. There is a threat for a boycott uh, by some countries, uh, starting with Mexico, but other nations as well. And we'll see uh, what the United States has been able to do up until now to resolve uh, those issues. So let us go. We're actually going to start with you. Um, Well, before I I actually welcome... um, our guests. I intended to do some clips, but I want to make sure that they are ready to go. So Laura Carlson, let me introduce you and welcome you. Laura, the director of the Americas program, works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here, despite the sobering news this week in particular. I'll tell you, it's if it's it's not, it's one thing after another. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, we'd like to welcome Jackie. She is a governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Good to be back. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. Uh, Dr. Horn, welcome. But give us again the title of your new book that's coming out shortly. Yet another one. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for inviting me. The book, which is actually out now, is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism, a topical item for today's discussion. Absolutely. And we'll be having you very soon, Dr. Horn, doing an in-depth discussion about that new book now out. So it is available. Let us now go to a couple of clips to lay the basis for our uh, discussion here. One is a clip uh, from Al Jazeera uh, related to the 
uh, you know, attempt uh, by the administration to pivot to Asia. And the other, that's from Al Jazeera, and the other clip from the Miami um, Herald, uh, Marco Rubio uh, saying that Haiti has to be a key issue on this upcoming summit of the Americas. Let's go to those clips now. This was a speech that Secretary of State Blinken had been scheduled to give before the U.S. president's trip to Asia as a curtain raiser, but it had to be postponed because he contracted COVID. In the interim, confusion was sown by Joe Biden when he gave this answer during his tour. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. So in part, the Secretary of State's task now was to explain whether U.S. policy towards Taiwan had shifted. Our policy has not changed. We do not support Taiwan independence, and we expect cross-strait differences to be resolved by peaceful means. And Blinken read out the portion of U.S. law that encapsulates Washington's position of so-called strategic ambiguity. To maintain our capacity to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize our security or the social or economic system of Taiwan. The problem is Joe Biden wasn't ambiguous at all, and this isn't the first time he's spoken at odds with official U.S. policy. So the question does remain, has policy changed quietly behind the scenes, or is this just a matter of a president giving his personal views off the cuff? The rest of Blinken's speech presented a stark geopolitical framework of China versus the international order. Blinken insisted the U.S. does not want a new Cold War of opposing regional blocs. Yet, at the same time, he touted the new alliances the U.S. was making in opposition to China. This is not about forcing countries to choose. It's about giving them a choice. The speech is likely to be viewed skeptically in Beijing. The speech will be seen in Beijing as hypocritical, and revealing that the Biden administration is taking a Cold War mentality to deal with the problem, in spite of Anthony Blinken saying exactly the opposite. China is clearly a threat to the international order as governed by the rules set by the United States and its Western allies. But it's not yet clear if non-aligned countries feel this geopolitical change is necessarily a bad thing. Shia Bertansi, Al Jazeera, Washington. I want to ask you about Haiti. We've invited the, prime, the current prime minister of Haiti, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. And, um, and obviously, I, mean, I don't want to speculate about what happened between now and that summit and so forth, but I have very deep concerns about Haiti, in particular the, the, the prime minister's, he's an interim prime minister. There's a lot, not a lot of clarity there about what happens if, God forbid, he is removed from office via a coup or something far worse, and we're hoping that doesn't happen. Um, and and I'm, I imagine the topic of Haiti, its future, its direction, how it goes from here on out is something that will be on the summit agenda. Is that something we're proactively raising? We, we are uh, very much engaged as part of the broad sweep of our diplomacy in the hemisphere on just that agenda, sir. Yeah, I think we really should highlight that as far as understanding what we can do first to help along with partners in the region to get some stability in Haiti. Without stability in Haiti, um, it has an impact on multiple countries. I mean, even Cuba is now intercepting Haitian migrants. We're beginning to see that. There's certainly a large number of Haitian migrants that are now transiting through Central America uh, and, and presenting themselves at the southern border. The Bahamas has long had to confront these sorts of challenges. 
And so I think it's really important that that be a topic that's highlighted and focused upon because I do think there are countries in the region that, can, that have a vested interest, beginning with the Dominican Republic, that obviously shares Española with them, but others that have a vested interest in contributing towards some level of governmental stability there um, and, and, and security so that we can, that can then be built upon to hopefully provide it better. And I, I just hope that the, that the, the topic of Haiti is prominently featured on the agenda and it's something that we really confront. Well, there you go, conservative Senator Marco Rubio out of Florida, um, asking questions about the upcoming uh, Summit of the Americas. And Laura Carlson, we'll start with you. I mean, he really sounds like a fan of Ariel Henry, the um, prime minister, very controversial of Haiti. And um, there's been a talk of a, a double standard of the U.S. inviting um, Haiti, in particular with this with this administration, to the summit of Americas of the Americas, while not inviting uh, Venezuela and uh, Cuba, among others. Uh, Laura Carlson, any updates that you know of in terms of what has happened or what is happening? Um, has the United States ha- have their efforts at diplomacy uh, managed to assuage um, uh, Mexican uh, president from boycotting the conference as well as others? I understand that CARICOM has backtracked a little and are now at least some of the CARICOM countries talking about participating in the Summit of the Americas. Any uh, thought on that and any thoughts you might have on the expose uh, well, we really shouldn't call it an expose, but on the series, the New York Times series in relation to Haiti, Laura Carlson. The Summit of the Americas, Margaret, is really showing us, first of all, the extreme misreading by Joe Biden of, of the region. Uh, he thought he could get away with forming another summit that was essentially a reaffirmation of what you mentioned of the Monroe Doctrine, getting together the countries that are closely aligned with the United States to pressure countries that aren't as closely aligned, controlling the process from beginning to end. And he met with a significant rebellion beginning with Mexico, of course, with uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador saying he would boycott the summit if Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua weren't invited in general saying that there had to be inclusion for this. So what's happening right now is that the Mexican president has reiterated his position time and time again and said, we are a sovereign nation. We will not participate unless there is the inclusion of all the countries. The Biden administration has been has been applying heavy diplomatic diplomatic pressure. I can't even count the number of calls and visits from uh, people in Western Hemisphere Affairs and other diplomats to pressure Lopez Obrador, but he's got himself boxed into a corner. In terms of the Caribbean, which is very important in 14 nations, uh, there has been some there have been some reports, Reuters, for example, saying that some of them are going back onto it because of the loosening of some sanctions in this week, kind of a bribe related to the summit on Cuba and Venezuela, according to them, it kind of gives them an out, but they're not confirmed, they're anonymous sources. It could be part of the propaganda campaign too, because the Biden administration is getting desperate on this. They are looking at the possibility of a failed summit, if not only Mexico, but Caribbean countries, 
uh, Honduras, Bolivia, you know, there's a list now of progressive uh, center left countries in the area that are not happy about this attempt to create a summit that is a reinforcement of U.S. hegemony in the region. And, yeah. Yeah. Carry on. Carry on. Mm -hmm. Well, I did want to mention Haiti because, number one, it is, in fact, a good example of the hypocrisy in inviting some countries and not inviting others. We know that there has not been a solid democratic process in Haiti, to say the, to say the least. And now, with this amazing in-depth reporting coming out from the New York Times regarding not only the debt, and the reparations that were for that Haiti was faced that was forced to pay after independence, but also confirming the multiple invasions and violations of Haitian sovereignty that have taken place since then, and also confirming the extreme racism that was that was at the root of this. What these people were saying at different points in history openly is we cannot allow the example of Haiti, a slave rebellion to exist in our hemisphere because it threatens our economic and geopolitical interests. And they did, they said it openly at numerous times within the history, but the case is, is still to be made that that's the, that's the position. You look at the attitude toward Cuba, it's the same. We cannot allow this small island to exist as a socialist country because it stands up as an example of better results in terms of health, of better results in terms of education than the rest of the, the hemisphere. It stands up as, as an example that threatens our economic and political interests in the region. That's what we're looking at right now. I think that this poses a number of major challenges to the People's Summit, which will also be taking place there, and to all people's movements in the region to begin to look at the, the, the scholarship on Haiti and say, how do we uh, bring out the questions of historical justice within our hemisphere and make individuals and governments responsible? And how do we rectify the continued control and looting that's taking place, much of it by a US government that now has significant problems with protests against that system throughout the region. Right, thank you for that, uh, Laura Carlson. And that reminds me of something that we're gonna be taking up on Sojourner Truth next week is that there's so much disinformation happening in, on Haiti that even the alternative summit of the Americas have the Haitians that they have invited to speak are actually folks that are problematic on the ground, for example, who yes. supported it, you know, the coup against President Aristide and the New York Times articles clearly show the reason the coup happened against Aristide. So this is something to see if the progressives and left uh, are able to clean up their act here. But um, Jackie Goldberg, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, mention any other international issue that we have not highlighted um, highlighted here. But also, you might want to 
uh, also uh, comment on these issues. I mean, if you, in Haiti, President Aristide was talking about restitution. There is a big um, discussion happening about reparations. And in the United States, after the abolition of slavery, you have the, um, the Homestead Act, which helped um, white Americans, right, um, to, you know, get on their, their feet or be able to get some land, et cetera, but denied uh, to those who were formerly enslaved. Jackie Goldberg, any thoughts on any of these international um, issues? And clearly there's a bleed over to domestic as well, Jackie Goldberg. Well, you know, I, <clears throat> was very interested in the New York Times series, but I first read about an, a, a more uh, dis long discussion in a, an old uh, newsletter called uh, uh, Political Money. And in October of 2021, they uh, did a, a great, great article on this whole issue of Haiti and how they came to have gunships brought into their harbor and told that they would be bombed and out of existence if they didn't pay uh, this money back. But I think uh, I would like to talk a minute about uh, the whole role of uh, Israeli politics in what's going on these days. You know, J Street, <clears throat> which is uh, not the most progressive, but the more progressive of the uh, Jewish uh, pro-Israel organizations, has uh, done polling every year about how American Jews look at Israel. And the support for a two-state solution is the first time that it has dropped uh, in, forever. Uh, it dropped from about 82% uh, of the Jews polled in America down to about 78%. It's important to understand that because until then, really, it had always been going up every year. Also, um, there are uh, the notion that a two-state uh, solution is important national security interest for the United States. That has dropped also uh, to below 80% for the first time. Um, so the, however, most uh, American Jews still support uh, re-entering the Iran nuclear deal and the support for diplomacy instead of military action is still about 65% to about 30%. The reason I mention this is because APAC, the reactionary group, uh, has spent millions and millions and millions of dollars against progressive Democrats in primary elections this year with mixed results. Um, <clears throat> and it's doing that even though the results of their uh, polling uh, by groups like JPAC show that actually uh, progressives are more in line with most American Jews. Uh, than the conservatives, but the progressive uh, organizations don't spend the kind of money. I mention this at this time because we are beginning to see a much increased in, uh, involvement of APAC in supporting Republican candidates, uh, particularly those who are the most uh, uh, anxious to make sure that Israel gets uh, everything it needs at all times, no matter what its politics. I will say one thing also that was shown in this poll, however, is, is that the, there was a pretty major jump by American Jews uh, toward Democratic parties after Trump. Uh, that was the biggest, now widest difference. It's about at 80% support Democrats and uh, not quite 21% support Republicans. Why this is important is, is because of course, as you have polling do, done in states where 
their close races, the APAC money spending two, three million dollars. And by the way, it doesn't do it under APAC. It uses a, a name called UDF, the United Democracy Fund, right? Having And they don't talk about Israel. They come in and they attack pro uh, uh, progressive uh, pro-two-party uh, solutions, pro-Palestinian uh, rights uh, Democrats on issues having nothing to do with Israel. It's a new approach, and it's a way of saying uh, we're going to not make Israel the issue because we don't know how people will react to that. So they find dirt about their opponent, uh, the progressive that so-called dirt, and they spend $2 million uh, at telling people negative things about the opponent uh, who is a progressive Democrat. This is a uh, change in their politics, but it doesn't reflect the change in the attitudes uh, of American Jews, which I think is a very interesting dilemma. Right, and, and Jackie Goldberg, we, we don't have time to discuss it, but it came out recently that at least according to what the Palestinian side has been able to find out, that it was Israeli uh, defense forces that shot and killed the Palestinian uh, journalist Shireen Abu Akhlin, then of course her funeral uh, a possession um, attack I mean, my God. In, in that way. No, the, yeah. the stuff that's going on is really heinous. <clears throat> and the fact uh, that APAC managed to, to get involved in American politics to support this heinous behavior uh, is not new, but to, to the depth of their doing it, the amount they are doing it, and now this undermining of doing it by having this UDF be the sponsoring of these attack ads on progressive Democrats. Right. And uh, thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And Dr. Horn, uh, quite a bit here on the international front uh, to um, for you to discuss. There is the pivot to Asia, you know, Biden's um, first presidential uh, trip to Asia, where he made some controversial uh, remarks um, uh, that we heard in the clip in relation to Taiwan that really upset uh, China. But also to note that Secretary of State um, uh, Blinken has now said that the uh, Biden administration, this is a report in USA Today, wants to rally the international coalition opposing Russia's invasion of Ukraine to also help counter China. Now, this has been a point, uh, Dr. Horn, that you have, uh, you have been making um, all along. I wonder your thoughts on this uh, pivot to China and what happened with uh, Biden's trip. But also, you have been doing media on this uh, New York Times series and also pressing the New York Times to release some of their data. I saw an article this morning that they are releasing some of the data that they gathered uh, for the series they did in relation to Haiti. I'm not quite sure if that satisfies what you were asking, but uh, your thoughts on these fronts, the pivot to Asia, as well as Haiti, Dr. Horn. Well, first of all, with regard to the New York Times opening the kimono, we'll have to wait and see what they actually reveal. As you correctly suggested, every school child in Haiti knows about the French ransom that was extracted from Haiti after the revolution, uh, compelling payments to enslavers which helped to cripple the Haitian economy. It's important also the New York Times series was published in the language spoken 
lightly by Haitians speaking of Creole. And I think it's also important that the series may inflame tensions with France. Uh, you may have noted that uh, former French President Hollande refused to comment uh, to the New York Times reporters. Recall also the elderly French socialist, Regis Debray, who used to brag about his relationship with Che Guevara. He was exposing a coup plotter uh, against Haiti. And the New York Times, for whatever reason, solely ignored the role of the United States, which in some ways was more damaging to Haiti in the 19th century than France. I'm speaking of the fact that since there were enslavers in the United States who, who thought that they should not necessarily go across the Atlantic to Africa to capture and manacle and enslave Africans, but should go to free Haiti and do the same thing. And so what that leads to is Haiti speak, spending more on the military, uh, which cripples its economy. And then the United States was busily bringing enslaved Africans to neighboring Cuba. Haiti tried to build up a Navy to detain that kind of commerce that too could have gone to education and healthcare, et cetera. And we all owe a debt of gratitude to Haiti because most of the slave revolts in North America have Haitian fingerprints all over them. I'm speaking of Gabriel's revolt in Virginia. I'm speaking of Denmark Vesey in South Carolina approximately 200 years ago, where he sailed in and out of Haiti uh, before the massive slave revolt in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, the good news is, is that if news prognostications are accurate, Haiti may become the first diaspora member of the African Union, headquartered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And that opens the door as well for Black Americans to follow Haiti's lead and to develop a relationship with the African Union in order to put pressure on the United States, particularly concerning this issue we'll be discussing in a few moments, which is gun violence. Now, with regard to Biden in Northeast Asia, uh, he supposedly committed a gaffe when he said that the United States would intervene militarily to prevent a Chinese takeover of Taiwan, the rebel island that China claims as its own. Uh, I don't think it was a gaffe, nor do many others. But what was remarkable is that at the time that he was speaking, you had a joint military exercise involving Russian and Chinese bombers uh, flying over that part of Asia which was a non too subtle signal, I'm afraid to say, uh, to Washington, although of course, Beijing and Moscow claimed that this was just a coincidence. You correctly suggest that uh, this conflict with China is stage two, the conflict with Moscow is stage one. The Blinken speech, which you mentioned, in many ways is an admission that US policy to China has been a failure that is to say that uh, while the United States was prating and prattling about the death of communist parties post-1989 and 1991, uh, China was building up this juggernaut-like economy, uh, which the United States is now trying to unwind, but that'll be as difficult as trying to unscramble an egg. <laughs> output uh dr horn we are going to uh take a station break now a short station break when we return we'll go on to the the national front oh my goodness just the news has been uh, just horrific buffalo and then this shooting of children at a school in texas and uh, the NRA, they're starting their convention this weekend. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
And that music, Cast Your Fate to the Wind by David Benoit. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. And also our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. You can also check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org where we have a community calendar and other information as well. We are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out um, in the United States to our SoundCloud listeners in the great state of Washington. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Singapore. We have quite a few SoundCloud listeners there in Singapore. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, uh, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. Um, we are now going to go to um, just the level of violence, uh, g- gun violence in particular, happening in the United States. Uh, The National Rifle Association, the NRA, will carry on with its largest uh, gun lobby gathering over this coming weekend, the Memorial Day weekend in Houston, Texas. A keynote speaker is the Donald, Donald Trump. This following two major mass shootings in the U.S. in recent weeks in Buffalo, New York, where white supremacist gunmen shot 10 African-Americans shot and killed 10 African-Americans in a grocery store. He injured uh, three others, two of whom um, were Black. And in Texas, where 18-year-old gunman uh, shot and killed uh, 19 uh, children and two uh, teachers. Now, the United States has had more mass shootings than any other country in the world, um, including uh, the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut that claimed the lives of 27 children and staff or the domestic terrorist attack by white supremacists in Charleston, South Carolina, um, in which nine um, Black people were killed during a Bible study at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, the attack at a Jewish synagogue during Sabbath services where a gunman yelled, all Jews must die before shooting and killing 11 uh, attendees. And uh, also, it seems like, um, <laughs> you know, can one be safe even in a place of worship or a public events such as the LGBTQ nightclub in Orlando, Florida, a mass uh, shooting that claimed the lives of 49 people. Meanwhile, um, guns and weapons, you know, flowing um, south of the border, also in Haiti, um, with the insecurity there. Um, there is the claim, where are impoverished people getting these weapons from coming in uh, from uh, the United States? And so an uptick of of gun violence in inner cities, also an uptick of domestic violence and femicide um, in the United States. So also, by the way, and in Mexico, recently there were several protests about the widespread femicide uh, attacks taking there. Meanwhile, the gun manufacturers are laughing all the way to the bank. The U.S., the world's leadest, leading gun manufacturer exporter, they've made record profits and avoided all responsibility for harm caused by their weapons. This in the context of this week, 
marking the second anniversary of the police killing of George Floyd. So on top of that, you have black and brown communities also uh, having to deal with police violence. But on this uh, tragedy that um, uh, you know took place um, at this school in uh, Texas, let us go to a clip now from um, CNN of police struggling to explain their response to that shooting. Two days after the mass shooting at Robb Elementary, the story of what happened when the gunman arrived on the campus has fundamentally changed. There's a lot of possibilities. I don't have enough information to answer that question just yet. The new details revealed in a bewildering press conference with the Texas Department of Public Safety. He walked in unrestructed initially. He was not confronted by anybody to clear the record on that. Police revised earlier reports that the gunman engaged with a school resource officer. According to investigators, 12 minutes passed when the suspect crashed his grandmother's truck on Tuesday morning and when he entered the school through an unlocked back door. He went in at 1140. He walks and I'm gonna approximate 20 feet, 30 feet. He makes a right, he walks into the hallway, he makes a right, walks another 20 feet, turns left, into a schoolroom, into a classroom that has doors open in the middle. Officers are there, the initial officers, they receive gunfire. They don't make entry initially because of the gunfire they're receiving. Police say most of the gunfire was in the initial minutes. There was a standoff for almost an hour before police forced their way into a classroom and killed him. The question remains why they couldn't get to the gunman sooner. Can you explain to us how he was barricaded? I hear you. Because we've been given a lot of bad information, so why don't you clear all of this up? Like, he's shooting, he's shooting. The bullets were, like, hitting the dirt on the floor and just... Like, the, bull why? the bullets were hitting close bullets from where? That I guess he was, was um, I guess he was coming from the, from the school this way. Parents were frustrated police wouldn't let them help save their children, despite safety procedures that keep people away from an active crime scene. Jesse Rodriguez lost his daughter in the shooting. He's angered by what he saw officers doing outside the school. They should have moved in, you know, I don't think... They had a right to sit there and wait. You know, they should have moved in faster. In all, more than 100 federal officers responded to the shooting, in addition to local police. For one young third grader hiding from the gunman, it seemed like even more. All we saw were thousands of police and bar patrol coming into the cafeteria. And we were all hiding behind a stage in the cafeteria when it happened. Bend. The Uvalde School District did have a safety plan with a system in place to provide a safe and secure environment. 21 measures, including a locked door policy. We're still trying to establish if there was any type of locking mechanisms on the doorway from the inside of the classroom because the gunman was able to barricade himself. There were a number of officers inside the school building that were taking fire from the shooter and that those officers responding to the scene were taking cover from that gunfire inside the school. But there is still an hour where all of this is unfolding and still many questions left unanswered as to why at some point during that hour there weren't uh, clear efforts made to breach that classroom where the gunman was. All righty. Um, so there you go. And uh, the other sad news is apparently the husband of one of the teachers who was killed has now died of a heart attack. Family are saying he died of a broken, a broken heart. But um, Laura Carlson, we're going to start with you on all this, because this issue of 
uh, gun violence. And, you know, there, there are a lot of tentacles here. Uh, not only these, these mass shootings, but the proliferation of guns south of the border, including in places uh, like Haiti, the uptick in, in femicides that we know there's a lot of concern about um, and protests going on in Mexico. But uh, your thoughts on all this on the domestic front, Laura Carlson? First of all, I, I have to comment on the last part of the clip regarding the contradictory police versions that are coming out. And of course, a full investigation must be done and we must have the full truth on that. So now we're hearing that it took them an hour to move in, that they did not move in and then they lied and then they covered it up. It was more important to the police to protect their macho image and their failed model of protection than to find out what happened and to prevent it. So that's absolutely shocking, but I have to admit it's not entirely surprising. When uh, Democracy Now! came out with an article called American Exceptionalism, uh, talking about this type of gun violence that you see in the United States and from abroad watching the reactions to this, I think that's both true and not true. On the one hand, it's certainly true the statistics that they give that there are some 400 million guns in circulation in the United States, more guns than people, and that that has led to uh, 213 massacres so far this year alone and 3,000 since 2014, according to the Gun Violence Archive. This is not something that you see in the same way in other countries. It, gun shooters are attacks are up 50% from last year. You know, it's clear that something very specific and deeply perverse is happening within the United States culture that's difficult for people to understand from an international point of view. It's also difficult to understand why the US government doesn't do anything about it. We've looked at these kinds of mass shootings, especially related to the global movement of the alt-right and the great replacement theory and the rest of it, you know, happening in other countries and they immediately changed their gun laws. They banned semi-automatic weapons, they reduced arms through buybacks, in Christchurch, uh, the Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern, who was in the United States, you know, to, uh, promoted and passed a lot of gun laws on that. But we don't see this thing of angry white men. This was also the week of the International Women's Day for peace and disarmament. So there's been a lot of talk about it and a lot of talk about the role that women have in particular to avoid these things. I think we have to make a strong connection between what's happening in the United States, which is culturally rooted, but also politically rooted with the fact of the economic power of the gun lobbies and with the uh, militarism of the government itself. In Mexico, 70% of guns that were traced to assassinations were traced back to the United States. They're permitting the eagle, illegal smuggling because it's a huge part of the business of these gun manufacturers. Last week, we talked about the possibility of a domestic suit against gun manufacturers. And Mexico, the government, Mexican government has in fact filed suit against them saying that they know what's happening and they don't stop it. So the relationship between the militarism, between the state violence and between the patriarchy and the misogyny that's also at the root of both the psychology and the histories of these shooters is uh, something structural that has to be closely analyzed if we're ever gonna turn this back.
Yeah, and as you say, and, and last year in August, the Mexican government filed a lawsuit in the U.S. federal court against 10 U.S. gun manufacturers, including Glock, Colt, and Smith and Wesson. Um, Jackie Goldberg, you know, every time these horrors happen and, you know, people are expressing deep grief and um, politicians are sending thoughts and prayers, but yet, no inaction from Congress. And the White House apparently has, you know, is limited in terms of what it can do in terms of an executive uh, order. So you have the strength of the, the NRA. You have uh, Trump uh, speaking to them this weekend. Your thoughts on that? We do see youth pushing back. I mean, they're planning yet another um, huge march for our lives. You remember after uh, the killing at Parkland in Florida, there was a, a huge march that happened in Washington, D.C. This new one is uh, scheduled for June 11th in Washington, D.C. to end gun violence. So I wondered if you wanted to talk about that, Jackie. But also, earlier, you began to talk a little bit about the, the primaries. We don't have time to go into uh, detail, the primary elections. But some are saying it really didn't look as good as um, Trump had hoped for him, uh, Jackie Goldberg. Well, I would say that in terms of... of uh, what we don't want to hear any more of is that, oh, it's video games. Oh, no, no, it's mental illness. Oh, no, it's anything but the guns. No, no. Well, you know, the, it, it's, the guns are a problem. You know, we have more guns than anybody else. We have 120 guns per, per American. For every 100 Americans, there are 120 guns. Uh, now, does that mean that's the only problem? No, I think it is the culture as well. You know, there is a notion in American culture of the, you know, stand your ground, have your gun, fight back, be in charge, be a man, have a gun, be a man, uh, protect your home from guess who, uh, pick any racial group of your choice, starting with African-Americans, but protect your home, protect your family, you have to do this. Well, it turns out that, of course, uh, having more guns doesn't actually provide more safety. Uh, but I think one of the issues that is not talked about nearly enough is, is that almost half of the gun deaths in America every year are to suicides. And there is a widespread belief amongst those of us who work with young people that if guns were not available, it would be much harder for many, many, many young people to commit suicide, to, 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 to take their own lives uh, because a gun is so easy to to unfortunately kill oneself. About 60% of the gun deaths in America uh, each year are uh, related to suicides. So the shootings are a problem, but it comes largely from the notion that somehow or another, uh, if you have a gun in your hand, you're a man, you can take charge and so forth and so on. I think it's also interesting to note that in a very large number of the mass shootings, particularly at schools, the shooter shoots a family member or two at home first. I don't know the connection between all of that, but that happened here as well. In terms of uh, how we look at the elections, I would say Trumpism had a great night, but Trump had only a fair night. Uh, most of the candidates that won that were not endorsed by Trump endorsed all of Trump's ideas. Not all of them, but most of them. 
and so I think Trumpism is widespread and it is even more powerful than Trump himself. Uh, Brian Kemp and Raffensperger both in, in Georgia showed that uh, uh, having Trump spend months and dollars and years and campaigning against you didn't bother them. Uh, particularly Kemp won by a huge margin, I think 30 or 40 points, and Raffensperger didn't do too badly either. So I think there, that there, is a, a, there are voters who uh, used to be Republicans, uh, and I think there are some Democrats that cross over in some of these primaries, but I do think that there is a limit to Trump's uh, endorsement, and that's not a bad thing, but I don't think it, we should be taking any solace from the primaries so far in the Republican Party because almost all of them, almost all of them show Trumpism is the most important thing you have to have in candidacy, whether you get Trump's actual endorsement or not. Right. Thank you for that, Jackie Goldberg. And, and uh, Dr. Horn, uh, your thoughts on all this? Well, we have to come to the bitter realization that what the right wing is telling us should be taken seriously. They say they want a proliferation of weapons because if there's a government that comes to power to which they object, there can be a mass armed uprising. And that helps to undergird their sacralizing of the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, which by the way, the United States Supreme Court within a few weeks will probably uh, strengthen that right to bear arms even further by possibly removing the necessity to get a license before one gets a weapon. And I think it's also important to point out that the Second Amendment helps to undergird this idea of settler colonialism. Obviously, enslaved Africans had no right to bear arms. Native Americans had no right to bear arms. In fact, keeping weapons out of their hands was seen as a sacred duty. It was the settlers, the invaders, that had a right to bear arms so that they could better take the land of the indigenous and enslave the Africans. And sadly, uh, that elementary truth has eluded many of our friends on the left, as well as the fact that there is a profitable export industry, not only to Haiti and Mexico, but all over the world, of these US corporations that uh, maintain this manufacture of assault weapons and handguns and all the rest. And I think that what this should call for minimally is a sort of rethinking of our basic slogans. It's clear that the 1% versus the 99% is a kind of class and economic essentialism since a goodly number of the 99% identify with the 1%. Basically what we're facing is the one third versus the two thirds with the one thirds being the Trumpistas, the John Bird Society, the three percenters, and these uh, supporters of this uh, right to bear arms by the descendants of settlers. And we also need to then do a critique of the institutions that help to bolster these forces. For example, it's clear that uh, the Electoral College, the US Supreme Court of unelected politicians in black robes, the US Senate, which gives Wyoming voters as much power as California voters, even though Wyoming's population is about 2% of California's population, 40 million, although both states get two senators. So we need a critique of many of these institutions that many have been celebrating. And I, and I must say, we also should factor in foreign policy. I think it's impossible for the United States to commit mass murder in Iraq and Afghanistan and other sites abroad too numerous to mention 
without that kind of cheapening of life, then coming back to haunt the United States, because it helps to introduce and induce uh, this culture of violence, that violence is the answer to settle problems. And obviously, too, it settles uh, the, the, this whole culture of violence uh, ties into U.S. foreign policy on the larger scale in terms of the aforementioned issue of the racial anxiety uh, that has been induced and instigated by the rise of the People's Republic of China. So uh, we, we have a lot of work to do, but I think it should begin with a basic elementary rethinking of the nature and origins of this country. Yes, and, and Dr. Horn, uh, just uh, quickly, we have to, to wrap very shortly. You know, a CNN analysis uh, listed 10 of the uh, nation's most populous cities uh, for homicide uh, records last year. We hear a lot, of course, about uh, Chicago and, uh, you know, Philadelphia and, and other places. And, you know, one you know, it's true there, there are too many guns, there is the proliferation of guns, but it does seem to me as though not much is said about the situations of poverty and the opioid epidemic and people self-medicating, et cetera, that is connected to this violence that happens on the street. Dr. Horn, I wonder if you have a quick comment on that before we have to go. Well, certainly, as Jackie Goldberg was suggesting with regard to her reference to male supremacy, toxic masculinity, there are very deep and profound cultural factors that also shed light upon this epidemic of violence that likewise we will have to tackle. Right. Well, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. Another fascinating uh, roundtable. I'd like to thank all of our panelists and uh, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like uh, to thank um, our board op for today. Uh, Wendell is our board op for today. Alicia Vargas, our uh, assistant producer. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend and remember to stay well and safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.